Thank you, Andrew, Jamie, Liesel. Good full room of singing great hymns. It's a great morning to worship the Lord, isn't it? It's easier to preach when we sing together like that. It makes me ready. Gets the Spirit moving in a biblical way in all of us. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 this morning. And we've been going through this book. We've been learning how to be wise. How to be a wise believer in the world that we live in. Sometimes people think Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, even Job are just books that are about practical wisdom that anyone can benefit from and they're not particularly Christian or they're not particularly godly. And it's true that someone might open the Bible and look at one verse and get some practical everyday benefit from it. But these books, these verses we're about to read were put here for a reason. They were put here for God's people. They were put here for us to learn from and to live out. Just because it's in the Old Testament, just because it's wisdom, doesn't mean we can ignore it. doesn't mean that we ought to just forget about it. We should love this part of the Bible. We should read it, study it, put it in practice. If you're a believer, you've been redeemed by Christ. You have a new identity in Christ. And you've got to know this book. You've got to know His Word. You've got to know all of God's Word. Paul taught the early church the whole counsel of God. All they had was the Old Testament when Paul was preaching. And he went there and he taught from it. Then, of course, more was written in the New Testament and added to it. So now we have the whole counsel of God before us. Well, let's dive into just chapter 10. I want to read it to you. The title of the sermon is A Portrait of Foolishness. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun. Like an error which goes forth from the ruler... Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull, and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Though indolent, uh, through indolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, In your bedchamber, do not curse the king. And in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature 
will make the matter known. Solomon's been teaching us about wisdom. And remember, wisdom's not just how do I do my job better, but biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, is how do I glorify God in all that I do under the sun? In all that I do under the sun in this life? How can I practice discernment? How can I practice decision-making in such a way that glorifies God? Solomon's been teaching us about that throughout the book. And he's been uh, teaching us about reality. Some people think the book is very pessimistic. Some don't even think Solomon wrote it. Others would go so far as to say, it's just about all the bad things in the world, and there's nothing good that can come out of this book. If you've been with us long, I've been preaching it uh, as a book written by King Solomon, written by one of the wisest men to ever live. Even though he made mistakes, even though he went into sin, he wrote this book much later in his life, near the end. And I think he's trying to teach the young people not to go where he went, not to make the same kind of mistakes, not to make do the same sins that he did. So after teaching on wisdom these last few chapters, he's made chapter 10 all about the opposite. He's telling us about foolishness. He's telling us about the foolishness that people in the world often do. The fool. And it's not somebody who's just acting silly. Not somebody who's just having fun and playing practical jokes. This is an ungodly person. This is someone who doesn't fear God. The term for fool in Hebrew is kasil. And you'll see it come up over nine times in this passage in one way or the other. The Hebrew word kasil is seen in a person's life. The word means to have no skill in living, no desire to learn the word of God for life. It means somebody who just doesn't care. They don't acknowledge God. They don't care about the Bible. They go about their life however they want. It's the exact opposite of wisdom. Hokmah in Hebrew. If you're a believer, you're to have wisdom. You're to learn from God's word. You're to apply it in your life. You're to make choices that glorify him. That's hokmah. Kessel is the fool. To be foolish. To be lacking in good sense. To be lacking in judgment. To make bad decisions. To lack discernment. The guy who really started the biblical counseling movement in the last century, Jay Adams, he said the word here refers, the word kessel refers to the wicked who exhibit culpable stupidity and has a moral and spiritual designation. One is stupid because he doesn't fear having saving. He has no saving faith in God. Even Christians retain many of the stupid and foolish ways they adopted before conversion. That's really a good word for it. Stupid. Not in the way that a person can't think, but they choose not to. They choose not to think about what God would want, not to think about the wisest way to live. Early on, I mentioned the word stupid in my sermon in Ecclesiastes, and we had a, I had a little kid come up to me and said, you said stupid, but it is a good translation. In fact, some translations of Ecclesiastes even say every time we have foolish in the NASB, it says stupid or stupidity. This is a sinner, a person running from God who does whatever they want, and they do not care. They live foolishly. And even as Christians, we are tempted to go back that way. We're tempted to follow in that path. We're drawn by our temptations. And so Solomon wants us to be careful. You're God's people. You're supposed to live like it. 
And so he writes here in chapter 10 quite a few proverbs. Remember, proverbs are pithy little sayings. He wrote a whole book called Proverbs. 1 Kings 4.32 says that Solomon wrote over 3,000 proverbs. Most of them are in the book of Proverbs that we know of. Some are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and others we just don't have recorded in Scripture. But he wants us to know from these Proverbs in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes that we're to stay away from foolishness. Here's what it looks like, he says, so you know not to go there. You know not to follow in the way of a fool. So he covers five areas, five areas where foolishness often runs wild, where it's obvious, where you can see it. It's not even a question whether it's foolish. He says these are five areas of life under the sun where foolishness has a profound effect, profound effect on the person who's not wise. Do you want to be a fool or do you want to be wise is the question. And he's been telling us in the book, and now he's coming towards the end, and so he's sort of wrapping it all together in chapter 10 of what he's said before and giving us a picture of what foolishness looks like. The first area of life is just foolish living. He says, watch out for foolish living. It's just a summary, really, in these first few verses. Be careful how you live because people are watching. You say you're a Christian, but then you live foolish. Somebody's watching. The world is looking. Your family, your children. Children tend to do exactly what their parents do, not what their parents say. So let's live in a wise way. And he starts it off with one of the most profound sentences in the whole book. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. More literally, dead flies cause a rancid fermenting of the perfumer's oil. Really nice picture there, isn't it? Can you imagine the smell? What that would be like? I imagine something like if you've left the meat in the freezer and the electricity goes out like it did back in February, although it was freezing outside, so it would probably be fine. In the summertime, your freezer goes out and the meat rots for about a week. It's rancid. In ancient times, they would take this oil, and it was very expensive, and they would put it on their head, they would put it on their body. They would do that for moisturizing, but also for deodorant to cover up the body odor. People didn't take baths every day. They didn't take baths even once a month. And so the way you covered up the body odor was to put a perfumer's oil on. Olive oil with spices, with perfumes. Do you remember when the sinful woman came to the feet of Jesus and she poured out a very expensive vial of perfumed oil? It says perfume in our New Testament, but it's actually perfumed oil. And she used it and they were surprised that she would do that because it was so expensive. It would also put perfume on dead bodies, spices, herbs, oil. A perfumer would make this large batch of oil by getting the oil, putting all the spices and herbs in there, his own special recipe, you might say. And then he would pour it out into little bottles and sell them individually in the marketplace. But if one fly got in there, just one fly landed on the oil, got trapped, died, and started to rot. And you can imagine what that would do over time. If multiple flies got in there, it would be awful. Then he pours it into these little vials, these little jars, and sells them on the market. And you get home and you think, I'm going to smell really good for my party tonight. I'm going to put some of this on. And you open it, and out comes this fermenting bubbly. Literally, the Hebrew there is a bubbly fermenting fly rancid oil. If the perfumer didn't 
Watch it. If he wasn't careful, these bottles would stink like rotting, decaying flesh or flies. It would ferment over time with the heat. And Solomon is saying, this is what a little foolishness does even to a person who has some wisdom. The perfumed oil, very expensive. Very sought after. Wisdom, very sought after. But just a little bit of foolishness can run the whole batch. So he says a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. It's good to have wisdom. People honor you for it. But if you say, you know, for today I'm just going to be foolish. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to sin however I want. It ruins your testimony. It ruins all the wisdom that you think you had built up until that point. The honor, the way people looked at you. Wise people must stay away from folly. We've got to stay away from folly. We've got to stay away from foolish people. Talked about that last week with bad company corrupting good morals. Even the fool is one who does not fear God and he lives in a sinful way. And the believer can still have these remaining desires, as I said, where we want to hang around foolish people. We want to do like the world does. We want to imbibe just a little bit. You know, it won't matter if I just sin a bit today, like my friends do. God forgives. God will forgive me. That's what a lot of people in Christianity say today. It doesn't matter if I sin. God's a loving God. He will forgive me. Well, if you're His, He will forgive you. If you repent, He will. But Paul said, may it never be that we would presume upon God's grace. That we would sin all the more because God has been gracious to us. Verse 2, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right. The foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Now, to be on the right or left, he's not thinking like the pagans did, that the left was evil, that the left was bad luck, and the right hand is always good luck. There were people in ancient times who thought left-handed people were somehow sinister. In fact, our English word for sinister comes from the Latin for left, left-handedness. But all he's saying here is that the right hand is the place where God is, the place where there's protection, the place where there's defense. If you're going to fight in battle you would often draw your sword from the right because most people are right-handed. If you needed help, you would hope that it would come from that side. As you're drawing your weapon, somebody is there to help you. You know that Jesus ascended and sat at the right hand of God. Often in the Bible, God is said to be at the right hand of believers. Psalm 16, Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And later, Psalm 16, In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I'm sure there's a group out there that has, you know, the leftist versus the rightist. And it's probably, you know, like everything is racist, everything is rightist. That's not what Solomon is saying. He's simply saying that in the ancient world, most people were right-handed. And a wise man, when he has to make a choice, he's choosing the correct path. He's choosing the way of assistance, help, defense, protection. He's making a wise choice. But the foolish man's heart is directing him the wrong way. He's not making a wise choice. He's following his heart. He's following his depravity. He's following his sin. He makes the wrong decisions in life. You might recall from Psalm, first Psalm, verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You're blessed if you don't follow those people. You don't follow the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. That's what he's getting at here in Ecclesiastes 10. Don't follow them. Choose the right path. Verse 3, even when the fool walks along the road, his sense, his heart is lacking. 
he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. He's a fool. It's, it's obvious. You think about the unbelievers you know. Believer, think about the unbelievers you know. What is their life like? What characterizes their life? And when you think about your own life, it should be different. It should be different. You should not look like the world looks. Solomon said back in chapter 2, verse 14, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He's stumbling around. He's bumbling around. He doesn't even know where he's going. He's just bumbling along. He's not able to find the right path. He doesn't even care. He doesn't try to hide it. Everyone knows that this person is on the wrong path, except him, even if he knows, he doesn't care. Everyone else can see, though, the fool's trying to find something worth living for. The fool's trying to find something that he can really sink his life into. You remember the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes? Solomon did that. He was being foolish. He was trying to find different things, money, pleasure, real estate, all these different things he chased after. But they're foolish. The fool is continually drifting toward what is sinful. It was a phrase when I was growing up, and my kids sometimes say it, who cares? You know, who cares? Why do you care so much about that? Because God does in this case. God cares. If the ruler's temper rises against you, verse 4, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. So here he's going from, here's what a foolish person looks like, to what happens when you're in the midst of a foolish person, like a ruler. And he's actually giving an imperative, a command here, a direct instruction. In the midst of a fool, Solomon gives some wise advice on how to not act foolish. Don't act foolish. And the ruler here is Moshel in Hebrew. Any government ruler at that time, any government ruler, not necessarily the king, but anyone. Local mayor, police, we could say. Don't be foolish when they get angry at you. Don't just run. Your boss gets mad at you at work. Don't just run off. I quit. That's it. I can't take it. My boss is stressing me out. Police got mad at me. They don't trust me. I'm going to run. That doesn't work out well, does it? You see that a lot on the news these days. Whenever the government is angry at you, be calm. Don't abandon your position. Be composed. Literally, the idea here is be gentle. Be patient. Respond in a Christian way. It's not time to go start a rebellion because somebody in the government got mad at you. It's not time to gather your weapons. Proverbs 16, 14. The fury of a king is like messengers of death. So the king is very powerful, but a wise man will appease it. Be wise. Calm down. Just wait. Don't abandon your position. By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded. Proverbs 25, 15. A soft tongue breaks the bone. As strong as a king is... A soft tongue, good words, gracious, kind words are even more powerful. And you know what Jesus said? Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the peacemakers. All of these things he describes in the Sermon on the Mount, for they shall inherit the earth. Calm down. Don't run off. Don't abandon your position. Whatever that might look like in your life, use wisdom in your life. Just in general living. Don't be like the fool who's walking down the road and everybody looks at that person and knows they're a fool. Be wise. The second area of life. And he's getting more specific here. Foolish government. So he ends on a certain subject like rulers. And now he opens that up in the next paragraph. Foolish government. Now we could say a lot about foolish government. As a Christian, you often 
know things in God's word about government that other people don't. You often know things about God's way of doing government in this world than even the rulers of our country do today. But Solomon is warning us, there is such a thing as foolish government, and you need to be aware of it. Verse 5, there's an evil, he says, a bad thing, a calamity that I've seen under the sun. And it's like an error. It's a big mistake which goes forth from the ruler. Now, this word for ruler is different than the one we just saw in verse 4. This is the word shalit. The modern Arabic word sultan is related to the Hebrew word here, shalit. It just means any ruler that's not the king, that's not the ultimate authority. So Joseph in Genesis is called a shalit and a moshel to Pharaoh. Any government leader who's under the king, under the Pharaoh, under, we might say, the president. So anyone who's not the top dog, but down the list. They make silly, foolish mistakes. What is it, Solomon? What's so bad about these leaders? Verse 6, folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men, we might say noble men, sit in humble places. Government leaders put their favorite people in position. Not because they're skilled, not because they're wise, because it's their buddy. It's the person who helped them get into position that they are currently in. It's their friend. It's their family member. And while the wise people are low in government, they're put in low positions. The wisdom that God has given wise people, these rulers aren't using. It's a foolish setup of government. The rich here are the nobles. And in our country today, we look at this and we think that's not right. He's saying the rich should rule and the poor should not. Now that's not what he's saying. He's saying the foolish should not be the ones in exalted places. And the rich should be lifted up. Meaning those who've been educated, those who've been trained, those who have experience in his day and age at reigning and ruling and governing people. You see the nobility in ancient times were taught, they were trained, they were brought up to rule in a wise way. So all he's saying here, it's not about the money. It's about the fact that they have more wisdom in general than these foolish leaders who are putting fools into places instead of them. Commentator Walt Kaiser says, These errors are the natural fruit of partiality, tyranny, and despotism. If the ruler had used wisdom, he would have chosen the nobles, literally the rich, whose ability to accumulate and handle wealth might have indicated the gifts of prudence and wisdom. You see this today, don't you, in government. You see foolish people put into positions of power that shouldn't be there. And you know there's got to be somebody more wise that could be in that position. He says, be aware of it. It is a great evil. It's a calamity. Verse 7, I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. All he's saying is this is backwards. This is backwards. It's upside down. It's topsy-turvy. The whole government is wrong side up. The common citizen in ancient Israel didn't even own a horse. The average person didn't even own a horse. And suddenly you have slaves riding horses. And the princes, the leaders, not the, the king's son. That's not princes in the Bible. Princes in the Bible are just the nobility, the leaders, the royalty. Military leaders would have a horse sometimes. That's it. Suddenly the slaves are riding horses that are very expensive, hard to get, and only things that leaders ride? Who is governing this country? 
the princes are walking? It's wrong. It's backwards. To put it in today's terms, it's like giving your 13-year-old the keys to your car so they can drive five blocks and you walk 20 miles to work in the heat in August. It's backwards. I know with a lot of parent-centered families today, that would make sense. But with wisdom, that's backwards. It doesn't make sense. Something is wrong. To get even more real, it's like putting a man in a dress who believes he's a woman as head of the state health department, which has happened. Whether it's in a government, whether it's in a denomination, whether it's in a church, you don't put foolish people in the place of a ruler. Today you have the largest conservative denomination in our country, and they have a president who's stolen sermons and just re-preached them over and over and over. He's preached with his wife multiple times on stage, and he's confused, or has been at least in the recent past, about the Trinity. And yet he's still ruling that denomination as of this morning. You have churches over and over who quickly put men into position. We've got to have leaders. We've got to have elders. And then you wonder later why the church folds, why the church disappears. Solomon says there's a great evil. There's a calamity. It's not right. And we could just go down the list in our government, in America, where we see this happening. We'll come back around to leaders near the end today. Thirdly, foolish work. Foolish work. You might say, well, I'm pretty wise. I'm a Christian. I follow the Bible. I don't get involved in government. Maybe some of you should if you have wisdom. But foolish work applies to all of us. Various jobs, various careers that are not wrong in themselves. He's going to list some just as examples. But you need to have skill and wisdom to do them safely. It's wrong to think. It's foolish to think. It's ungodly to think that you know all things and can do all things no matter what. I know a lot of men like this. Maybe I've been a man like this many times. I can fix it. I can do anything. And then what happens? You hurt yourself. You chop off the end of your finger on the men's lake trip. You think you can do all things. And there's no wisdom. There's no caution. I'm bold. I'm strong. I can do whatever I want. And Solomon says, have wisdom. He who digs a pit may fall into it. This isn't the the Proverbs guy who digs a pit to catch somebody. I think this is just a general list of things that people do for work. The guy's out digging a pit. And in the ancient world, he would do that to trap animals, to store water, to store food, to bury the dead. And he says, look, don't be foolish. You know, God gave you some wisdom. God gave you a brain. Use it. Don't fall into the thing that you're digging. A serpent may bite him who breaks through the wall. You're demolishing a house in ancient times. You're working on the wall that goes around the city. And snakes hide out in those crevices, in those cracks. Don't just stick your hand in a hole. You know, it's like these guys that I grew up with. They would go along the river and just put their hand underneath a bank and grab a big catfish. You got to have wisdom to do that kind of thing. Don't just rush into it. A deadly snake bite will take you out of that job and maybe out of this life. Don't just be like the teenagers say, who cares? I'll put my hand in there. I'm a brave guy. You just lost it. You just lost your hand or your life. Be wise. God gave you wisdom for a reason. This is foolish when people do that. The people who work on quarries and they quarry big stones, you can be hurt by them. Working around heavy machinery today, have some wisdom. Slow down. Young people, you don't know everything. Older people, you still have things to learn. Have caution. Doesn't make you weak to slow down and think about things. And he who splits logs may be endangered by them. The people who work with Lumber, the lumber industry, massive logs can roll on you. They can crush you. 
And the point of all these jobs are don't be overconfident in your work. Not only does it make you look bad with your customers or the people you work with, but you can actually get hurt. You can get hurt. Some of you, that might just mean losing your job. Others, your body parts or your life. Be careful. Have wisdom. And he says, while we're on the topic of that, verse 10, if the axe, literally if the iron is dull, and he's got to be talking about an axe because he just talked about logs here. If the iron is dull and the person doesn't sharpen its edge, then he's got to exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. In other words, apply wisdom to your work. Apply what God has taught you both through the Bible and providentially through life and the experiences of life and use that to your advantage. Use wisdom. You've probably heard, don't work smarter, work harder. Maybe somebody would use that to be lazy, but it's true according to the Bible. Work smarter. You don't just keep banging your head against the wall thinking that you're working harder when you could actually do a few things to work smarter. Use wisdom, like he's talking about here, to produce a better result. The fool says, I don't have time to sharpen my axe. I don't have time to sharpen my axe. I'm too busy. I got other things to do. I got too much work to do. The aspiring pastor might say, I don't have time to train as a preacher. How would that work out for you as a church? We're going to put a guy in the pulpit. He's never preached before. He doesn't even know his Bible because he doesn't have time to sharpen the axe. It's not going to benefit the church. You're not going to benefit anybody in the job that you do if you don't sharpen the axe. Sometimes we think it's being godly if I just keep banging my head against the wall. That's what God wants. He just wants me to keep banging my head against the wall. And maybe he does, but sometimes that's us. It's not God trying to necessarily teach us a specific lesson. We are just being stubborn. And we refuse to change careers, get new training, sharpen our axe, whatever that is. That's not godly. Solomon has put it right here to sharpen the axe. We need to be smarter. We need to be wiser about things. The fool never stops and thinks about this. The fool just goes on through life doing what he wants. Whatever I want, the fool says, that's what matters. And God says, slow down. Think about these things. Stop being overconfident. Sharpen the axe so that you can work smarter. Verse 11, he goes back to now these different jobs, these different careers. Here's one that I don't think we have in our church. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. Snake charmers in the ancient world were entertainers on the street. We still have some in our modern world in India, Malaysia, Indonesia. And uh, I looked up a few of these guys because they have videos of them now. My kids got a lot of entertainment out of this. But there are some videos where the guy picks up the snake and it bites him. Cobras. Multiple times. A couple of these guys just go on like it's no big deal. They're shaman or whatever in Indonesia and the villages. And then two hours later, they're dead. They thought it was no big deal. Pick up this snake, get bit. Well, this is an entertainer. This is somebody who gets paid, who gets money on the street. To entertain. But if the snake bites you before the guy's charmed it, before he's used the music and the movements to kind of lull the snake into some kind of non angry attitude, if the snake bites before you do that, then there's no advantage. There's no profit to be made from that. In fact, the person's going to die. The snake charmer or his customers are going to die. That's what I can't get is all these guys are around this entertainer and they're close enough where the snake can bite him in these videos. The snake can bite them. I'm not getting that close. If the man had been wise here that he's talking about, the snake charmer, he would have had better timing. He would have benefited from the work. 
which is entertainment here. You might say today, why lock the barn door after the cow has gotten out? Doesn't do any good. Cow's gotten out. Oh, now I'm going to go lock it. It's too late. Use wisdom. Don't be overconfident. And in this case of the snake charmer, it's timing. There's a right time to do what you're doing. There's wisdom in just timing. Fourth area of life. And this is a huge one for us. Foolish words. Foolish words. Be careful what you say. Don't be foolish with your words. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. Verse 12. We talked about this a few weeks ago. A whole sermon on the wise man is gracious. And he's just reminding us that we need to be gracious with our words. Proverbs 22, 11. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. He goes on here. He says, while the lips of a fool consume him, the beginning of his talking is folly and the end is wicked madness. Fools don't speak gracious words. Fools just speak foolishness. And that literally consumes them. It eats them up. Their own mouth, which they speak from, ends up consuming their whole life. It eats them up. It goes from bad folly in the morning to insane madness at the end of the day. You've got to be careful with our words. You can't just say, I'm a Christian. I'm not like this guy. You've got to be careful with our words, though. We can still stumble. We can still fall. Jesus said, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. In other words, your words will show if you're truly a believer or not. If you back up and look at your whole life, Jesus says, everyone's going to know. How do you speak? How do you use your words? Don't be like the fool. The fool, verse 14, he multiplies words. He just keeps talking and talking and talking in conversation. You can't get a word in edgewise. He just keeps going, telling you all about his life, what he's doing, how great he is, she is. The fool just keeps talking. And no man knows what will come, what will happen. Who can tell him what will come after him? He has no idea what's happening. He just keeps on talking like he does. You know, he recommends this investment. He thinks this is going to happen. He has no basis for it. It's foolish talk. He doesn't really even care. He has no idea what's coming. He has no idea what's happening. Now, these are the people who love to get in cult. They love conspiracy theories. Or maybe it's just a foolish optimist who thinks everything's rosy, everything's great. You know, power of positive thinking. That was real popular for a while. Get up every day and tell yourself positive thoughts. Just keep talking, talking, talking. Now this question, who can tell what comes after him? You might recognize that's come up a few times in Ecclesiastes. Five other times this question comes up. And it's meant to clue us in. Who really knows what's coming in the future? No one. So why does Solomon keep saying that? Because he's trying to get us to think only God knows. Only God knows what's coming next. Only God can tell the future. So if you don't know the future, who's the only one you can really trust in to take care of you? tomorrow, the next day, the next month, the next year. Don't be foolish. The wise person trusts in God. The answer to the question is only God knows what will come next. But the fool doesn't care about God. He doesn't fear God. He ignores the fact that a future judgment is even coming. He'll tell you what to do in the future, and he'll tell you what he's going to do in the future, but it's based on his heart, his own desires, and has nothing to do with biblical, godly wisdom. Verse 15, the toil of a fool. What's his work? Talking. And it wears him down. It even wears him out. It wears everybody else out. And it wears him out. And he doesn't even know how to go to a city. He's so worn out by his talking and his foolishness that he's clueless about directions in life. He goes on all day long with his wearing words. But yet he can't even find his way to a city. 
And cities weren't hard to find in those days. There was just one road going that direction to the city. And a fool can't even find his path there. He's like the line in Shakespeare's Macbeth. A tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Warren Wearsby says there's a bit of humor here. The fool boasts about his future plans and he wearies people with all his talk, but he can't even find the way to the city. In Bible times, the roads to the cities were well marked so that any traveler could find his way, but the fool is so busy talking about the future that he loses his way in the present. He's always telling you what he's going to do, what he's going to do tomorrow. I've got these great plans. How's your life now? How's your marriage now? How's your spiritual walk now? No answer. I'm going to tell you about what I'm doing tomorrow, next month, next year. Don't be the fool. We might say today this person doesn't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. That's four areas. We've looked at foolish living. It's just general, the way you live. Foolish government. Foolish work. Foolish words. And number five, foolish leaders. We're back around to government. A little bit different focus now. He's just talking about the leaders themselves, not the people they appoint necessarily. And believers ought to care about government. Sometimes believers, our premillennial believers, get accused of not caring about the future, not caring enough about government. And we should care about government. It's not our primary focus. The Lord and His future government is our primary focus. But we should care about government. We should care about the leaders. At the least so we can vote wisely. You may choose to even get more involved in that. But he's going to tell us here about foolish leaders and the rest of this chapter. Woe to you. Woe is a judgment term. Judgment upon you, O land, country, nation. There'll be judgment upon a nation whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. A young king is often a foolish king, an immature king. He doesn't know what he's doing. You remember the story of Solomon's son, first kings? What happens? Solomon has all this wisdom. He wrote all of these books in the Bible. He even wrote Ecclesiastes for the future rulers of his kingdom. His son's probably in this class as Solomon is teaching what we're reading here. His son, Rehoboam, what does he do? He listens to his friends, not the elders, and he divides the kingdom. Not intentionally, that's the result. But he was foolish. He wanted to brag and boast about himself, and he was at war his whole life. Now you might say, well, I'm I'm not a young lad. You know how old Rehoboam was? Early 40s. And he was a young person in Israel. In other words, you still have a lot to learn, even in your 40s, 50s, 60s, on up. The king is a lad. He's foolish. He makes unwise decisions. The princes, the wealthy nobility, the leaders here, they're feasting in the morning, meaning they're getting drunk by lunch. Whoa, judgment on such a people. When a government is immoral, What's the cause of that? Well, that's the people, their depravity, but also that's God's judgment. Whoa, judgment. That's exactly what he said he would do. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to read a couple of passages. Just go forward in your Bible to the book of Isaiah. And he's speaking about Israel here. And he's speaking about the, the judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom, the one that's going to be left after the northern kingdom is taken away. Now, this applies to Israel, but there are lessons even for us American Christians to learn from here. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4. God is speaking here about the coming judgment. And he says, I will make mere lads their princes. And capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. Now, you might look at 
our president and Congress, different leaders, and you might think, well, they're still, at least they're, they're older. We could argue whether they have wisdom even at an older age. But who's out in the streets? Who's rioting? Who's trying to take over by force? The capricious children. Each one is trying to rule over his neighbor. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Skip down to verse 12. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. All this critical race theory. All of this upset in universities and schools. Who's driving that? Well, the young and the old. But the the huge force, the one everybody's scared of, is the young, the immature. The ones who will torch your house, break into your neighborhood. You know how much crime is on the rise in our country in the last year? Most cities can't, even here in Texas, you know, it's less than other places. But most cities don't even know what to do about it. Because suddenly, these young rebellious people feel like, hey, nobody likes the police, we can do what we want. We can take what we want. And crime is on the rise nationwide. But blessed, he says, back to Ecclesiastes 10.17, blessed, O land, you're blessed, the country is blessed, whose king is of nobility, meaning in those days he knew what he was doing, he had some training, he had some practice, some skill he had learned from his elders, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time. For strength, not for drunkenness. Remember Ecclesiastes 4.13, he said a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king. So he's not just saying, oh, you've got to put the old people in charge, and no young person can ever have wisdom. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in general, if you let all the young people rule, there's going to be problems. But if you let people who are older with wisdom, with maturity, then it will be better. Your land will be blessed. Maturity is what we're looking at. Wisdom. And these people who are wise, they're not eating and drinking in the morning, getting drunk by lunch. They're just eating for strength. They're not being gluttonous. We have a lot of rulers today who are just consuming for themselves. They're in positions of power to see what they can get out of it. A lot of pastors today who are in positions of power so they can have the $5 million house, the private jet, the house in the Bahamas, and it's all paid for by the church. Proverbs 31.4 says, It's not for kings. It's not for kings to drink wine, for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed. It's a judgment. Back to Isaiah 5.11. Isaiah 5.11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Leaders must have self-control. Leaders must have self-control. That's why we tell any elders or men who want to be elders here. It's not that alcohol is completely forbidden in the Bible, but you need to have self-control. You need to not be out on the town partying. You need to not invite people over and drink it up. We're not one of these churches like you might see on social media where we have a men's group and it's just one bottle of hard liquor after another on the coffee table at the men's group. No Bible. That's not in the picture. It's the hard liquor being pictured. Leaders need to have self-control. And he sums this up with this little proverb in verse 18. Through indolence, the rafters sag. Through slackness, the house leaks. I don't really like that translation. Here's, here's my translation. In extreme laziness, the rafters sag. And when hands are low, they're hanging down here because they're not working, the house leaks. Just take it literally. If you don't maintain your house, it's going to fall apart. If you don't fix it yourself or hire people to fix it, your house is going to fall apart. Now let's apply it broadly like he, I think he's doing here. Your nation's going to fall apart if you don't have good leaders. If they're all about themselves, they're gluttony, 
their drunkenness. The nation will sag. The roof will sag on the nation. It will fall apart. That applies to your own house as well. Men, fathers, mothers. You don't take care of your family. It's going to fall apart. But here when it comes to leaders, lazy leaders will lead to a nation falling apart. We're just not going to act. They think the wise thing to do today is just not act and do anything. Just enjoy the position of power that leaders have and not actually get anything good accomplished for the people. Verse 19, men prepare a meal for enjoyment. A lot of people say this is, again, a a positive here. I don't go with that. He's still talking about these leaders who are in it for themselves. Now, other places in Ecclesiastes, he does talk about how food is good for God's people. Wine, even, is good for God's people. But here he says money is the answer to everything. That goes against everything Solomon has taught us up until this point. Now some say, well, he's just saying money's good for everything that you want to buy, like food and wine. No, the context here is the leaders, the foolish leaders. They just think, hey, food is for enjoyment, wine is for happiness and partying, and money is the answer to everything I want in life. I can get all the toys, I can get all the power. If I get in trouble, I'll just buy my way out. I'll just hire the best lawyers. I will get out of trouble and never have to worry about it. The context is a negative one here. They have no fear of God. They follow their own desires. And it's a destructive life. Again, Isaiah 5. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. And valiant men in mixing strong drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. It's all about themselves, whether it's for alcohol, drugs, money, power. And they'll even accept the bribe. They'll even do what other people are putting pressure on them to do, even if the person's in the right that stands before them. But he finishes telling us some good advice, even when it comes to leaders, even if they're foolish, even if they're some of the worst leaders you've ever seen in your life. Verse 20, in your bedchamber, literally the translation is in your thoughts meaning there's no one even around to hear what you're thinking. Do not curse a king. Don't just rail against your leaders. In your sleeping rooms, don't curse a rich man. Again, a noble, a leader. You might think a mayor, a governor. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. It's going to come out sooner or later. They're going to find out. Now, you might think, well, the president's never going to hear what I'm saying about him. That might be true, but somebody else will. Somebody that is watching you closely, listening to you. And if it's a local leader, they might hear about it. Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: you shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And remember what Jesus said. This is a New Testament concept as well. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms, there it is again, the idea of inner sleeping chambers will be proclaimed upon the housetop. Don't curse your rulers. Pray for them, the Bible says. Pray for them. Don't curse them. Don't badmouth them. Don't gossip about people that are in charge over you, your boss, your church leaders. Don't slander. That's some of the worst sin that you can commit is gossip and slander. What good is that going to accomplish? So you're unhappy. They sinned against you. You're going to repay evil with evil? You're going to to spread around gossip and slander? And And the idea here is if you have it in your thoughts... It's going to come out eventually. The little bird's going to hear it and take it away. A little birdie told me. Probably comes from this verse right here. Let's be careful how we look at leaders. Let's not be foolish when we lead. If you get to be in a position of leadership, 
Recognize when leaders are being foolish, but don't speak evil against them. Let's live wise, godly lives. Let's fear God. Let's fear God more than we fear man. So we want to live like this book, the Bible, tells us. We don't want to leave it up to ourselves on how to live. Sometimes Christians think, I can just go and live like I want. I've been saved. I can go have fun until heaven. That's not what the Bible says. Live a godly life. That's what God wants us to do. The New Testament says it very, very much to the point. And Solomon is saying it in even older terms. Be wise. Don't be foolish. There's a danger to foolishness. It leads into further and further sin and foolishness. Follow God. Be wise. Be like Christ, who was the wisest person who ever lived. He dealt with all kinds of struggles. He dealt with leaders. He dealt with sinners who were attacking him, people who wanted to kill him. And what did he do? He dealt with all these types of people. And what did he do? He was gracious. He was kind. And he always lived out godly wisdom. So let's pray now that we would have that as believers here today. Father, help us to live in a wise way, a way that brings glory to you. Let people look at our lives and say, how do you do that? How do you handle these situations? And let us use that as an opportunity to tell them of Christ, to tell them of the one who's changed us, who's given us a new heart because he died for us, because he redeemed us from our sin. We've been made new and now we live for him. We live for righteousness. Let us be holy as you are holy. Let us live out wisdom so that the whole world can see it. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.